Hey guys, we decided to take this week off because there's just a lot going on. It's Labor Day weekend, it's school starting, the fair is going on. I know if you're not in eastern Idaho, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but if you are, you know the fair is a big deal. It's one of my very favorite things in the whole world, and it just gets really crazy during this week. So next week, we'll be back with our regular scheduled episodes, but for this week, I didn't want to just leave you hanging. So I decided to release one of our Patreon episodes in full here. I actually released a sneak peek of it a couple weeks ago. So if you listen to that, the sneak peek into the monster of Missouri, you only heard half of the episode. We didn't even get to the murder that happened yet. And with that, here's the full length episode. Hopefully you'll enjoy this little bonus from our Patreon and get a taste of what you get over in the fan club. Welcome to this month's mini-sode for our Patreon fan club members. A lot of my info today I found through Redux, which you can find at redux.info, and this is an independent pro-woman, pro-child news source. Most of the court documents I obtained were linked through this source, and let me just throw a trigger warning here before we get into it, because it might be a short episode, but it is disturbing, and it involves discussion around the sexual assault of two nine-year-old girls, as well as a disabled man. So why? I know, but it's something I just learned about and something I had to share because the person who committed these crimes and was originally sentenced to death for it is now an advocate for a group that I'm sure does not want this person speaking for them. They're writing books. They're writing for public journals. Can you just do a normal kind of story rather than involving kids? Oh, I know. It does suck that this does involve kids, but... It is just, it is wild to me that this person is basically being praised through all these publications and people are hiring them from prison to write these journals and do these things. Yet none of those publications mention the reason this person is sentenced to prison in the first place. Yeah. Let's dive into it then. According to the Missouri Court of Appeals in a document titled State versus Trimble, it was June 13th, 1979 when two nine-year-old girls are playing outside in St. Charles County. This is in Missouri and the girls are playing in a wooded area located near the intersection of Elman Road and Essex Street. These little besties are close in age. The older girl was born in September of 1969 and the other one just one month younger, born in October of 1969. They had been running around when they came across a tree that had this rope tangled up in it, and they want to get it down so they can play with it. They're jumping and reaching. They're even trying to climb, but there's no luck. And it's during this pursuit of the rope that Patrick Trimble spots the two girls. He's 20 years old at this time in his life, and he's just over six feet tall. So he tells the girls he can get the rope down for them. They're excited, especially when he starts showing them all these neat tricks he can do with the rope. He's like, okay, let me show you these really cool knots, and then you guys can try them yourselves. But you have to help me out. He then puts one of the girl's wrists in front of him, tying it up with a locked knot, and then he does the same to the other girl's wrist. This is when the monster inside of him is shown because he grabs the rope dangling between the two girls and starts taking the two kids through the trees and over to his car, forcing them into the back seat, telling them that they better not cry or scream. That would be terrifying. Yeah. 
those poor little girls, like nine years old. I thought when you were first telling me the story about the rope and them playing in the trees that like a trap was going to. A trap was going <laughs> to fall down. You're was like, going to fall and get them or they'd be snatched snatched up in a net. That would be absolutely terrifying, like a bear trap just <laughs> grabbing them. No, that. Yeah, that would be so scary. <laughs> but no, just a monster that was kind of hiding around and probably they would have been better off if they were caught in a trap. So Trimble drives the two girls a short distance down the road to another wooded area, leaving their bikes laying near the intersection of where he had just taken them from. And he demands both girls to take off their clothes before removing their underwear himself and sitting both girls onto a log. Then he unzips his own pants, exposing himself. The questioning between law enforcement investigators and the younger girl was heart-wrenching. I read all of it, but I'm not going to reiterate every question and answer here. However, I am going to describe what happened as simply as I can. It's hard to hear, but I want to make the crime clear just to show you how evil this person is. So after he exposes himself, Trimble starts kissing the girls on their lips and their breast area before forcing both girls to perform oral sex on him. Then he takes the younger girl back to his car, telling her to lay on the ground beneath the back seat. Once she's down, he both orally and vaginally rapes her, and once that assault is finished, he starts to molest her, and now she's screaming. So he puts his hand over the girl's mouth, telling her to grab her clothes back by the log before letting both girls go free after at least an hour of detaining them. Did it only happen to the one? So the beginning part happened to both of them, where he forces them to perform oral sex on him, and he's like kissing them and kind of like molesting them. But only the younger girl is raped. Mm -hmm. And so the assault is more vicious on this one girl. But the court records, the court document that I read states that the other girl's testimony like goes right hand in hand with what that girl had said. Okay. And the older girl's mom, she had actually been driving home from work just before the girls were taken. It's 7.50 p.m. when she spots the girls' bikes alongside a ditch where she assumed they were playing. She stops the car to jump out and she checks on them. She knew they'd be playing nearby and she just wanted to let her daughter know that she was home from work now. So she calls out to them and it seems that she was able to check in, but no one knew that Trimble was laying in the ditch unable to be seen. It was right after this that he kidnaps and assaults the girls. Then he releases them and a person, person driving by spots the girls, offering them a ride home. Both girls make it home by 9 p.m. that night. So that's why police know he had them for about an hour, maybe a little longer, from about 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. So the mom called out for him before they were kidnapped? I think so. At first, I thought she just saw the bikes, thought they were playing, and called out to them and, like, didn't get an answer. But then it stated in that court document that Trimble is laying in the ditch and she couldn't see him. So I'm thinking she was able to, like, be like, hey, I'm coming home. The girls are right there. And then when she leaves, he comes out of the ditch and, mm. you know, yeah, takes the girls into his car. Because I think if she wasn't able to communicate with them right then when she saw their bikes laying there, she probably would have looked further, gotten more worried, like would have reported that she didn't know where her kids were. Yeah, if they know. didn't answer. Yeah. 
So it seems to me she was able to talk to them and that's kind of how they have that time frame of an hour because she sees them at 7.50 and this other person drives them home by 9 p.m. The girls are brave enough to communicate to their parents what had happened and immediately law enforcement's called in and although a later appeal in this case would state by the defense that the girl's description of their attacker was inaccurate, it matched Trimble almost perfectly. The younger girl describes the man who hurt them as a white man, 24 to 27 years old, long black hair parted in the middle, acne on his face, and a mustache. This guy had a black tattoo of a spider on his left wrist, and she estimated him to be maybe six feet tall. And the older girl describes the perp as a white man, 25 to 30 years old, long dark brown hair parted in the middle, and 5 foot 11 inches tall. Now, obviously, the age description is off and the height's not perfect, but these are literally two nine-year-old girls. I can guarantee you that I, a 27-year-old woman, cannot accurately guess the age or height of anybody. Yeah. So, you know, he's 20 at the time. He's six foot one inches tall. So the girls are pretty close in their description. Mm -hmm. like of age and height. And then at his trial, Trimble testifies that during the attack, he had hair just above his shoulders, parted down the middle, a mustache, and a tattoo of a spider, as well as a partial cross on his left forearm. So obviously, this is the same person. Both girls also identified Trimble through a photo lineup. One was done four days after the crime, and the other was done on June 17th, 1979. And it stated in that court document that the one done four days after was a picture of Trimble from two years earlier. So the girl had seen it and she said, that's him, but his hair's longer, which makes sense because this is two years before. Yeah. And then he had been growing out his hair. And now at this time in 1979, it's to his shoulders. And then I believe it's the other girl who does the photo lineup on June 17th. And that's a photo of him on that same day. So you know, she identifies him as he is that day. Thankfully, that appeal I just mentioned and where I found this detailed information was not granted. Quote, we find no infringement of defendants' federally protected rights in any respect briefed or argued here. We perceive neither error materially affecting the merits of the action nor plain error. Accordingly, the judgments are affirmed. Before I can get into the sentencing at the conclusion of this trial and the later privilege and reward of being deemed a transgender feminist, an activist, an author, and an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community, we first need to talk about the violent assault and murder that Patrick perpetrates onto his cellmate while awaiting his trial for the rapes. And I'm not saying that the LGBTQ plus community doesn't need advocates for those of their community that are incarcerated. I know they do. The prison system needs reform and change in so many ways. Being an advocate for the change you believe in is needed. We just all know this person is not it. It's not someone who benefits that community. I don't forgive child rapists regardless of their gender, identity, race, religion, all across the board. I just don't believe child predators deserve any recognition because those little girls' lives are changed forever. And an FYI for everyone, I am referring to Trimble's identity through this story as he identifies during those years. So during this time, He's identifying as a man, and if you haven't been able to guess it, later on he identifies as a woman, and I'll refer to him accordingly 
when he does that. Okay. So what happens to Patrick's cellmate? Jerry James Everett was arrested and put into the St. Charles County Jail in October of 1979 after he steals a van. So he's sent to jail and he's just awaiting trial. According to an appeal document, Jerry was described as being mentally slow when this document states that he may not have fully comprehended what was happening to him. Jerry's mom would testify that he did struggle with a drug addiction, and after running away from his family home multiple times, he became isolated, really keeping to himself by 16 years old. He had been seen in an inpatient hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and he struggled with reading and writing. So Jerry is placed in this jail just two days before Patrick was placed here after being arrested on charges of kidnapping, rape, and sodomizing the two nine-year-old girls. These two are not cellmates, but they're in the same block. So it's like a group of four different cells. So they're in that same area, but different single cells. Yeah. So Jerry's the same age as Patrick, 20 years old, but he's much smaller. We know Patrick's about 6'1", and he weighs around 210 pounds, while Jerry is a couple inches shorter and weighed only about 145 pounds. After Patrick arrives, he starts running his mouth, telling multiple inmates that he was scared of being sentenced to prison on the charges of assaulting those children, because prison inmates don't take kindly to child predators. He was telling everyone that it would be dangerous and hard for him to go to prison, on only those charges, so he's hoping to catch something bigger. And at first, Patrick just starts challenging Jerry to these card games, knowing that he couldn't understand the games and would always lose. And the prize for winning these games would be to take all of Jerry's food. So he starts off like starving him, and then Patrick starts physically assaulting Jerry. He was doing things like burning letters into Jerry's skin by first burning a shampoo bottle. And then he would also place lit matches between Jerry's toes while he was asleep, causing him to wake up in pain to his burning flesh. It's during an autopsy that those burns were determined to be half an inch deep, the burns of the letters. So they're really deep burns. And Jerry was also made to be Patrick's slave. He was forced to do whatever Patrick demanded of him, and daily, Jerry was raped by Patrick both orally and anally. On top of this, Patrick loved to embarrass Jerry, forcing him to put on a bra and wear it around for all the inmates to see, which I don't know how the men's prison obtains a bra, but... I I was like, oh, how'd they get that? I don't know. That's just sad. It sounds like he really bullied him and abused him. Yeah. He was like literally torturing him throughout their time together in that cell block. And he was and Jerry slow or like. Yeah. And he's handicapped. he's mentally. Yeah. He's like mentally struggling. So like the court document said, he might not have even fully comprehended what was happening, but he obviously was being hurt at least that much he knew that he was he's being abused by this person and I just I don't know embarrassing this poor guy who's being assaulted daily it just like hurt my heart worse than forcing Jerry to wear a bra Patrick had actually forced a rag into Jerry's anus during one assault and then he forces Jerry to show this rag to all the other inmates Patrick was basically putting it on display that he was abusing this man uh I don't get it I don't either 
And then he wants him to show everyone. Show it to everybody. To embarrass him and be like, I did this to him. Ew. And he's obviously a sexual predator. Yeah. I always say I never get this stuff because I guess I don't have that brain mentality. (laughs) No, I don't think pretty much anyone gets this unless they are a predator (laughs) and disgusting. So (laughs) I'm with you. Well, there's plenty of... um, items that that aren't necessarily that aren't necessarily predators well yeah that we've seen in the (laughs) er in the hospital stories and stuff but well totally but that that's consensual if it's consensual okay but (laughs) if it's not then well it's not so it's obviously like dis like it's just disturbing that he's forcing him to be like this embarrassed and putting it on display And Patrick even offers to sell Jerry to other inmates for sex. He forces him to kiss other inmates and to sweep and mop their jail cell block. And if Jerry didn't comply to Patrick's demands, then Patrick would beat him until he agreed to finish the work. So after weeks of this torture, Patrick's trial for his original charges are coming up. And while he's gone for court, he doesn't want Jerry to talk to the authorities about what had been perpetrated onto him. So Patrick's talking with some other inmates on a Sunday just before his trial, and these inmates are Kenneth Schwab and John Rice, and he says to them, you know what, I'm going to kill Jerry to keep him from talking. That same day on November 11th, 1979, Patrick forces Jerry to write a suicide note to his family. Patrick makes sure that Jerry tells his family he just couldn't live away from them and he doesn't want his family to cry for him because he is accepting the Lord into his life. I'm thinking Patrick wanted this part included in the note to make it seem like it really did come from Jerry because Jerry read the Bible daily during his time in jail and he seemed to be very religious. That's actually how Patrick first gained Jerry's trust. And so when they first met, Patrick tells Jerry that he's actually a minister, which he's not. But Jerry believes him. He gains his trust and then he does all this abuse to him. So Jerry writes this note under Patrick's instruction and he puts it in an envelope already addressed and stamped. Jerry's mom had given these envelopes pre-addressed, pre-stamped all to him so that he could write her from prison since he wasn't able to remember his own home address. It's the next day on November 12th, 1979, that Patrick murders Jerry James Everett. The inmates had eaten dinner, and after getting back to their cell block, Patrick is like, hey, Jerry, do you want to play the hangman's game? Remember, Jerry's struggling with a mental disability, so he doesn't question Patrick when he tells Jerry to sit in front of him on the floor while Patrick sits on the bed. Patrick tells Jerry he's putting his dress on him when he wraps a blanket around Jerry. Then he stuffs a towel into Jerry's mouth and puts another towel around his neck. He starts to twist it. Jerry struggles for the next 15 to 20 minutes as Patrick strangles him, twisting the towel tighter and tighter. Eventually, it's so tight that Jerry's neck is fractured. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Like, and he said to another inmate that it took a long time. Like he was, and so that's purposely doing this. He purposely did this to kill him, and it took him fifteen to twenty minutes. And Jerry struggled through that. Oh my gosh! Oh, it's devastating. And once Trimble determines that he had killed Jerry, 
He ties him upright in the towel, trying to make it appear as though Jerry had taken his own life. So he tied it onto the bed or some other object in the cell, and he makes it seem like Jerry's hanging. He thinks the note that he forced Jerry to write would help this narrative. Mm. Now, I'm not sure why Patrick comes in saying he wants to catch bigger charges, and he's like indicating when he comes to jail that he plans to murder someone. But then he actually does and he makes it look like a suicide. All I can think of is that he came in saying that just to seem big and tough and intimidate the other inmates. He's trying to act cool, even though we all know murder is not cool and neither is a child rapist. So he's like the furthest thing from cool. But it just seems like he's trying to talk the talk. And then he actually does not want to be caught in this murder once he does it. In fact, he calls all these fellow inmates into his cell and he's like, listen, I murdered Jerry, but I'm going to make it look like a suicide. And all of you need to say that we were watching TV when it happened. And I know people on the outside, so you'll be killed if you turn on me. So the inmates agree. The plan is on when a couple of them call the guards over to the cell. The guards walk up to see Patrick and Jerry's actual cellmate, Alvin Tate, removing the towel from Jerry's neck. Immediately, the guards yell to the inmates to go back to their cells, and they grab Jerry down from where he hung, trying to revive him with no luck. And when the inmates are questioned, they stick to that story. We were all watching TV when it happened. But they don't stay loyal to Trimble for long. Soon, nine inmates confessed to the police that they knew for a fact Trimble purposely murdered Jerry. Six were eyewitnesses, and three had heard Trimble express intentions of murder. In the first case involving the two nine-year-old girls, the jury finds Patrick guilty of two counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, and one count of rape, and one count of sexual abuse in the first degree. The jury hands down a punishment of seven terms of imprisonment for 15 years and one term of imprisonment for five years. The trial court orders these sentences to all be served consecutively, so one after another instead of all together if they would have ordered them to be served concurrently. So seven terms of 15 years equals out to 105 years and then the extra five years. So he's basically sentenced to a total of 110 years for the kidnapping and rape of the nine-year-old girls. He appeals that sentence but is denied, as I said earlier. And then he also has to be tried in the murder case of Jerry James Everett. The jury finds Patrick guilty of capital murder, and Judge Robert Russell denies Patrick's request for a new trial, and instead he sentences him to the death penalty. The court document I referred to in this case was an appeal document, which was also not granted, stating in conclusion, quote, the evidence shows the appellant slew his victim in the confines of a prison in the manner of an execution, and this court finds that the death penalty for appellant is neither disproportionate nor excessive. Finding no reversible error, the judgment should be and is hereby affirmed. But by 1985, Patrick's death sentence is overturned, and he is instead given a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 50 years. He's serving his time in a men's maximum security prison there in Missouri where both of these crimes were committed. So about 30 years pass. Patrick is serving his sentence as he should be, and it's now 2015. Trimble has just come across information regarding gender dysmorphia. 
He learns about an LGBTQ plus support group and he gets in contact with them after saying he was assaulted by a fellow inmate and needed support. He told Vice that he was reading this information and just thought, wow, this explains my life. By 2018, Trimble is still in prison and is diagnosed with gender dysmorphia. So hormone replacement therapy is started. So the public pays for this? After raping two little girls and murdering another person who you also raped multiple times. Wow. Yep. And at this point, Patrick has is now going by the name Patricia and is identifying as a transgender woman. So from here forward in the story, I will refer to Trimble as a woman, not because I respect Trimble in any way, only because I will show respect for the transgender community as a whole, because they aren't responsible for monsters like this taking advantage of their movement. Although I do think they are responsible to stand up against these people and not be associated with them. Now, once Trimble starts hormone therapy, she is soon featured in various LGBTQ plus publications. Trimble's doing work to help other trans-identified males gain access to benefits in prison. She's written multiple journal publications for a public journal. And Razan Sibi honored Trimble in 2021 for being such an incredible mentor, mentor for the incarcerated LGBTQ plus community. I don't get it. I know. Me either. <laughs> Razvan is a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Massachusetts. And he also, while he's praising Trimble, says that she is referred to as mother by mem- many members of the incarcerated LGBTQ plus community. And what I'm wondering is like, you're a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Massachusetts. Did they not simply do their research into why exactly Trimble's in prison or do they not care? I don't know. I'm guessing they probably don't care. And that's just like disgusting. Like it doesn't matter where you come from. Like you go to church. If a person who is in a church, even specifically your church, rapes a kid, you're not going to support that. No. And like others would expect you not to support that person because you don't support someone just because they're a part of a similar group. Yeah. I mean, I get it. The community probably does need people within the prison system to kind of be mentors or be kind of leaders for this movement. Absolutely. But not Patricia. (laughs) But... Um, they're all in there for uh, reasons, right? Yeah, but there's certain offenses that like I feel are different. You know, maybe you're in prison for, you know, struggling with a drug addiction or maybe you're in prison for like stealing something, you know, like other things seem more forgivable than the rape of two nine year old girls and the murder of, of a handicapped guy. Exactly. Like, this is not the person you want on your side. Yeah, I personally wouldn't want that representing my community. Exactly. Exactly my point here. It is like, that is not who you want. People also probably think I'm super judgmental. So there you have it. (laughs) I do not think it's judgmental to not want someone who rapes little children and murders others to not be in this position of being praised or rewarded for being an advocate. You shouldn't be an advocate. You shouldn't want, the group shouldn't want that person to advocate for them. No. And I'm assuming they don't. But who knows? I don't know. If 
If you're listening and you think he should be, you should email us and tell us why. Literally, give me a gr- a reason. I I'd love <laughs> to hear like other people's yeah. viewpoints because I don't get it. I don't either, like at all. It actually pisses me off. <laughs> so through all those publications, through all the praise, through all these things that are like public articles, journalism articles, people saying that Patricia's doing this great work. It is never once mentioned why Trimble was incarcerated. It only states that she struggles going through a men's prison because of an oppressive and transphobic system. And like we just said, two things can be true. I'm sure the prison system is transphobic. It can be a struggle. And I'm sure there's members of the transgender community there that are, you know, wanting change. And Patricia is probably struggling. At the same time, Patricia has committed various evil acts beyond the comprehension of community and therefore just does not gain my sympathy, nor do I think she deserves to be praised as an advocate. I just don't think it's right. On top of all of this, Trimble has written a book titled Finding Purpose, One One Transgender Woman's Journey. This book is literally sold on Amazon. You can look it up right now. She wrote this and had it published March 10th, 2021, all while still being in prison. And the profile for Patricia Elaine Trimble under her book reads, quote, Patricia is a transgender feminist, activist, and advocate for the incarcerated LGBTQ plus community. She's spent over four decades of her life in Missouri's prison system with her first adult incarceration at 17 and her first juvenile incarceration at age eight. Although Miss Trimble was charged, convicted, and sentenced to over 100 years for a crime she did not commit, she is also serving a life sentence for a murder she committed in 1979. Miss Trimble has earned her GED, attended junior college, and St. Louis Uni- University, where she studied theology and made the dean's list. Currently, Miss Trimble lobbies Missouri legislators and prison administrators for changes to end mandatory minimum sentences and institute meaningful programs for the rehabilitation of LGBTQ plus prisoners. And when I tell you... Wait, so what What crime is she saying she didn't commit? Well, that's what I was going to say. When I tell you that this profile pissed me off, I'm actually downplaying it because she did commit those crimes. They are just writing here that she's wrongfully convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and sodomizing of the two nine-year-old girls because they feel like it. They feel like saying that even though... She very clearly did. It has never been overturned. The appeal was not granted. The evidence was sustained. That happened. Does she say she never did that? Apparently under her book thing. Oh my gosh. But it like you can't just write that. You can't just say you're wrong. Like, I mean, obviously if you're wrongfully convicted, you're wrongfully convicted and you should fight for yourself to get out. But just because you write a book... And you don't want people not supporting you because you raped two nine-year-olds. You cannot then just say, oh, I'm sentenced to 100 years for something I didn't do. And I, that wasn't stated before. I mean, the defense tried to prove it. But does it? Does she admit that she murdered the guy in prison? Yes. Okay, she still, she still did that. She's still a murderer. <laughs> so whether she raped the nine-year-old girls or not, which it literally happened, she, she killed... Jerry James Everett 
and sexually assaulted him. So I just, when I read that, I was like, okay, so they're purposely, whoever's helping her obviously publish this stuff and do these things. They obviously say that the rapes of two nine-year-olds were not done by her because they know people don't take kindly to sexually assaulting children. However, the murder, they're like, well, that did happen. Yeah, that's insane. It's like so frustrating. Or maybe she says she didn't do that one because she got resentenced from the death penalty to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 50 years in Jerry's murder. However, it doesn't matter. She can't get parole at 50 years because she's also serving that 110 year sentence. Yes, she's a very disturbed person. Absolutely. It. I just could not get my mind around that. I was like, well, you can't just write that she didn't do it because she did. Yeah. She's literally serving her time for it. And I do understand people are wrongfully convicted. I I do get that, obviously. Yeah. From our first case we ever presented. Yeah. And those cases are absolutely horrifying to me. But this is not it. This is not. This is not that. Mm. So Jerry James Everett had the rest of his life ripped away from him, all because he sat in jail on a charge of stealing a van. He may have been struggling mentally, but he had a family who loved him and he had the potential to learn from his mistakes and live a full life. His family deserved more time with him. Jerry also suffered from extreme torture perpetrated by Trimble before his murder. He lived in trauma and sadness up until he fought bravely for his life while being strangled to his death. And those two nine-year-old girls may not have died that day, but their life was lost too. Their childhood was stripped from them by the selfish and depraved acts perpetrated onto them by Trimble. Their innocent view of the world was shattered that day, and it's a trauma they will bear every day for the entirety of their lives. Let's not ever forget the real victims here. <laughs> 